want to, uh, I want to share with you the message that I and, and originally was planning on sharing last Sunday, but God had a different plan. Uh, it's part of a small series entitled, There's an App for That. And in, in, in 2 Timothy, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us this. He tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. I love that. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. Say that word, useful. Come on, useful. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. Here's what you'll find. Scripture is useful. It doesn't matter what you face in life. There's Scripture that applies to that. It doesn't matter what challenge is before you. There's a Bible verse that can help you navigate that. It doesn't, doesn't matter what opportunity you're, you're looking at. It doesn't matter what dream you're pursuing. You can find this, that the Bible has a practical plan for you to navigate that to the point of greatest blessing for you and greatest effectiveness in life. Because all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. It's useful for teaching, right? Rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God or that the person of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. So everything that you face in life, every opportunity that you have, there is a principle or a promise in the Word of God that you can apply to that situation. There's an app for that. There's an application. The Bible is very practical. It, it's, it's not just some historical book. It's, it's not just some relic. relic. It's, not an, it's not an ornament that should sit on your coffee table. Uh, it's not an artifact that should be revered from a distance, but it's a practical guidebook for living. And I want to talk to you about... Uh, I want to talk to you about what I believe is one of the key areas for application uh, in, in this daily walk, in this daily life. I want to talk to you about the issue of fear, right? I want to talk to you about your fears, and, and I want to talk to you about the, the different levels of fear and how we navigate that. In fact, we all deal with the issue of fear on one level or another, right? I'm sure we do. Uh, uh, in, in fact, let's do this. At the count of three... I want you to help me out, okay? The count of three, I want you to shout out your greatest fear. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah, like seven of you shouted that out. Okay, by show of hands, how many of your greatest fear is public speaking? Yeah, you just evidenced that because you didn't say anything when I asked you what your greatest fear was. And we all have these issues, right? We all face this issue of fear, fear of closed in places, fear of heights, fear of falling, fear of death. Fear. Fear of snakes. Okay? I, I'm going to tell you something. I, that's me, man. Fear of, I, I don't have a lot of fears, but I don't, I don't do well with, seriously, even talking about it's making me queasy, I need to stop. But this issue of, of fear. And, and here's, and so in First John it says this. It says, where God's love, there is no fear because perfect love drives out fear. Now, let me let me say this. That's not always true. Oh my goodness, I can't believe the pastor just said that the Bible is not always true. I, I want to talk to you about fear and I want to talk to you about the different aspects of fear and the different phases of fear. There's some fear that is just a natural response, right? There just is. There's some fear that's just a natural response. And I believe this. I believe that it's healthy, okay? Uh, you should, be, you should have fear. You should be afraid of standing in front of an oncoming train. Amen? I'm worried about you folks this morning. I just, I really am. 
Listen, I know, I know it's time change Sunday, but you're going to have to work with me a little bit. Come on, help me out here. And, uh, and so we, there are those things that are good fears. There are those things that are, that are natural fears. There, there were things growing up that I wanted my children to have a healthy fear of. Okay, don't do this because if you do this, it's going to cause pain in your life. And, and so there are those things um, that I think that God, I think, I think that's God instilled fear. Okay? I, I think that's healthy that he's wired us to go, yeah, you need to be uh, not real excited about going in this direction. But this issue of a fear and, and, and how we walk through it, I think is very important. So I want to talk to you about fear and I want to talk to you about the, the levels of fear or the phases of fear. And, 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 and to do so, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to, we're going to look at 1 Kings 18 and 19. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning in 1 Kings and then we're going to, we're going to go over 1 Peter to look at how we respond to fear. But I want to explain to you the three phases of fear. The, the three phases of fear. The first fear, the first phase of fear is surface fear. In fact, that, that fear that you shouted out or that fear that you're afraid of shouting out, that's surface fear. For the most part, all of the fear that we deal with, all of the fear, all of the fear that we think about, that we connect with, that's, that's surface fear. It really is the first level of fear. Okay? So that, that, that fear of high places, okay? that, that, that fear of, of bees, that fear of whatever, um, that fear, somebody said that fear, said they had a fear of fire. And so those are all surface fears and those are the, the first level of fear. And we see this evidence in 1 Kings 18. Let me, let me set the scene for you. It's 135 years after the reign of King David. And we've gone from David to Solomon to Rehoboam. The kingdom of Israel has split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah which is led by the descendants of David and the kingdom of Israel, two tribes in the kingdom, kingdom of Judah, uh, of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 tribes that are part of this group that still calls themselves Israel, and, and those th that during the divided kingdom, there were 240 years of the divided kingdom, 19 kings, and they were all horrible for the most part. And... And a guy that was really bad was this guy by the name of Omri, King Omri. King Omri's son Ahab was even worse than him. In fact, it, it, it says this about, about, about Ahab. When we're introduced to, to Ahab, it, it, it tells us this. It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Okay? This guy was a horrible, corrupt guy. He was, he was vicious. Uh, he was ruthless. Uh, no ethics. He ended up marrying a woman by the name of Jezebel. That's a name that might be familiar with you. You might have heard people call somebody a Jezebel. And the, the reason for that is Jezebel was that she was a, a highly manipulative woman. She was the daughter uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of, of a Sidonian king. Okay? Now this Sidonian king that Jezebel was the daughter of, he was not just the king of that area, the king of Tyre. Uh, he was also the high priest in their in their, um, in their false god worship. They worshiped a god by the name of Baal or Baal. And, and so uh, Jezebel grew up as the daughter of the king who was also the high priest. So she grew up highly privileged, okay, learning how to manipulate in the political system. Um, and she grew up profoundly religious, connected to idolatry. 
worshiping uh, this god Baal, who was supposedly the, the god of the earth, and then a, uh, this companion god, Asherah, who was the god of fertility. And so when, when Ahab marries Jezebel to form this military political alliance, she brings her manipulation and also her idolatry. And, and, and very quickly, uh, because Ahab is kind of spineless and he, he, he lets her be very manipulative, the idol worship of Baal becomes the predominant form of worship in the land. Okay, and so just a not great setting. There, there are a group of people in Israel that still understand that there is one God, Jehovah, and among them is this prophet by the name of Elijah. And Elijah prophesies over Ahab because Ahab is so evil that God is going to withhold the withhold rain. And Ahab is not real happy about it. In fact, Ahab is chasing after Elijah and trying to kill him. And Elijah decides, you know what? It's time for Ahab and I, it's time for us to have a showdown. And so Elijah makes this decision all the while, Ahab is struggling because there is no rain. So Ahab calls in this trusted advisor, Obadiah, and he says, Obadiah, we're going to go look and see if we can find any water anywhere. We're going to look to see if we can find any grass anywhere to where the livestock, and hopefully we can feed our horses and feed our livestock to where we don't have to, to, where we don't have to kill them all. And so Ahab goes one way, Obadiah goes the other. And as Obadiah is looking for water, he sees Elijah off in the distance. And he is very encouraged because Obadiah, even though he is a servant of Ahab, Obadiah is a man who reveres the Lord. In fact, so much so as Jezebel's killing off all of the people that are profound men of God, all those who consider themselves to, to operate in the prophetic, Obadiah actually hides a hundred prophets. Uh, 50 in, in two different caves. And so Obadiah is a good man, even though he's serving an evil king. And he sees Elijah off in the distance and he's encouraged. Oh, Elijah, is that you? And Elijah goes, yes, it is me. In fact, I want you to go tell your master I'm here. And Obadiah goes, what did I do? What did I do that you want to kill me? Because here's what I know. I go tell Ahab, you're here. Ahab comes and you're not here because who knows where the spirit of the Lord is going to take you. And then he kills me. Ahab or, 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 or Elijah, why do you want me dead? Okay? In that moment, in that interaction with Elijah, Obadiah has what we would call surface fear. He has that in-the-moment fear. I don't want to do this. It's a bad idea. I'll, I'll, I'll get killed. Right? And so consciously, he understands this. Consciously, he understands this is not, uh, this is not a good thing. And, and here's, here's what surface fear is. Surface fear is when you have anxiety over whether or not God can protect you in the moment or whether or not God will save you from the situation. That's surface fear. Okay? And we all face that. I don't, I don't care how much of a spiritual giant you are. I don't care how firmly you walk in the faith. We all face those moments of surface fear. Right? And, and, and those moments when we go, oh, I don't know about this. And, and that's where... That's where, Oba, that's where Obadiah is in the moment. And he's dealing with this issue of, of surface fear. Surface fear, here's what I, I love about surface fear. Truth will push back against surface fear. Okay? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Okay? This, issue of, this issue of walking in truth, when I, when I walk in truth, I, it, what it does is it, it dispels this, this issue of fear. If I don't deal with the surface fears in my life, what will happen is this. It will lead to this second phase of fear, which is subconscious fear, or fear that's beneath the surface. Surface fear, I understand. I understand that I have a, a fear of, of falling. I understand that I have a fear of fire. I understand that I have a fear of heights. I understand that I have a, a fear of bees. I understand that I have a fear of the color of yellow. Anyway, all those different things, we understand those surface fears. But subconscious fear, subconscious fear is the fear of, of failure. It's the, it's the fear of rejection. It's a it's a fear that we can't qualify, we can't quantify, but it's, it's there. And, and subconscious fear is almost always highly irrational. Let me give you an example of, of, of subconscious fear. Fast forward in the story uh, just a little bit. Elijah meets Ahab. Ahab confronts Elijah and he walks up to Elijah and he goes, so what's the deal, troubler of Israel? And, and to which Elijah says, I'm not the troubler. You are, you are evil and it's time for a showdown. You have brought Jezebel. You brought all this false teaching, all of these false, false prophets. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get all the prophets of Baal. I want you to get all the prophets of Asherah. And what I want you to do is I want to meet you on top of Mount Carmel. Right? And so they meet on top of Mount Carmel. There's a showdown. Elijah says, we're going to, we're going to produce, we're, we're going to lay out two sacrifices. You lay out your sacrifice. I'll lay out my sacrifice. 450 of you, one of me. Let's see whose God is bigger. And the idea is present the sacrifice. Whoever's God consumes the sacrifice is the one true God. The prophets of Baal, they, pre they prepare their sacrifice. They pray, nothing happens. Elijah taunts them. Nothing happens. He finally says, okay, you guys have had enough time. Elijah prepares his sacrifice, the bull. Not only does he prepare the sacrifice, he has them pour water on it, so much water on it that it's soaked and a trench around it is full of water. Elijah prays, God sends fire from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. And Elijah says, children of Israel, you now know for sure who the one true God is these guys are false prophets. The word of God says that false prophets are to be put to death. Put these 450 prophets to death. And deed is done. 450 prophets are put to death. Elijah has this amazing God victory there on Mount Carmel. Shortly thereafter, Jezebel hears that her 450 prophets to Baal are killed. Understand this. These weren't just 450 prophets. These were people that she was close to because their temple was built right next to the palace. These are people that she hung out with every day. So Elijah had Jezebel's prophets and friends put to death. She's not happy about it. And she says, I'm going, may God, may, may the gods deal with me if I don't put you to death. And Elijah, for some strange reason, freaks out and starts running. He's... he's he is gripped with fear and paralyzed with fear. It's irrational, illogical, it doesn't make sense, but he's fleeing for his life. And if we don't get a grip on the surface fears in our life, what will happen is this. It's very easy for those surface fears to feed into subconscious fear. Okay? And surface fear is this. 
Surface fear is wondering if God will help. Subconscious fear is wondering if God can help. Let me say that again. Surface fear is wondering if God will help. Subconscious fear is wondering if God can help. Now remember, Elijah's just seen God work a major miracle and have a monumental victory. And yet in that moment, what does he do? He panics and he freaks out and he's running. And it's, it's very easy to find ourselves gripped by subconscious fear, a fear that we can't really qualify in our mind, and yet we have this anxiety, we, we have this tension. In fact, here's what I find. Are you ready for this? I find that far too many Christians live a bulk of their life in this issue of some subconscious fear. Okay? Let, let me give you an example. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I want you to think about this. Do you believe in God? Do you love God? Do you believe his word is true? Do you tithe? Oh, here's what I know. Are you ready for this? About 30% of you that are here tithe. Okay? 70% of you don't. This is what I believe. I believe this. I believe that 90% of you want to tithe. By the way, I'm not trying to get in your pocket. The offering's already been, been taken. Okay, I'm just talking about this issue of fear, right? And the reason we don't tithe, even though it's clearly in the word of God, is not because we're greedy. It's not because we want to rob from God. It's because this issue of fear, and it's not even a fear that we can really totally qualify. It's just this, this below the surface fear that we have. Okay, and so we live our lives uh, on this issue of, of hard to wrap our hands around, hard to, to get our conscious around fear, but it's there. Okay, so it's making sense. And we just kind of trying to trying to navigate and trying to trying to process through, okay, how do I how do I live out this journey? But I've got this, I've got this nagging anxiety, I've got this nagging tension. Even when we walk in and, and we believe that we're living a, a life of faith, there is that occasional, but what if I'm wrong? But what if I'm wrong? And listen, here's what we do. When we're, when we're caught up in subconscious fear, we become uh, more passionate about absolutes. And so ask the, ask the typical Christian, okay, what if you're wrong? Let me give you an example, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to talk about this in greater detail on Easter Sunday morning. I'm telling you, Easter Sunday, you want to have your unsaved, unchurched, de-churched folks, you want to have them here at, at church, because we're going to talk about the basis of this life that we live. Okay? And I, I believe this. I believe the Bible is the infallible, divinely inspired Word of God. But what if I'm wrong? Oh, you're not wrong, Pastor. But what if I am? What if we're all wrong? What if the Bible is not divinely inspired? I can't believe he's saying this. Somebody needs to call the national headquarters of the Assemblies of God and have his credentials revoked. You know, I think we need to have the courage to ask those questions. Because let me, let, let me just help you. In my humanity, because I'm imperfect, I'm capable of being wrong. And in your humanity, because you're imperfect, you're 
you are capable of being wrong. In fact, one of the problems that so many people have in coming to faith is that Christians will not acknowledge the possibility that they're wrong. And here's what I love. Listen to me. Your faith is not dependent upon the word of God being infallible. I believe that it is. I'm very convinced that it is. Okay? But even if it's not, you know the only thing that's important, the only thing that, that, that determines whether or not your faith is valid is this. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Right? That's all that matters. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? And the amount of evidence, even extra biblical evidence, that proves that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it's massive. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, was crucified on the cross, and rose on the third day. The hundreds of people that he appeared to. The fact that so many people who were involved, who were instrumental in having him put to death, then afterwards became Christ followers, demonstrates that Jesus is who he claims to be. His brother James, half-brother, right? Because they shared the same mother, they didn't share the same father. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not a follower of Jesus during his earthly ministry and becomes one of the preeminent people in the church. Why? Because when Jesus died, it didn't surprise James. But when Jesus rose on the third day, it freaked James out. Right? And he goes, oh my goodness, the stories mom told us, right? And the claims that were made about Jesus, even though we dealt with vicious sibling rivalry, I hated him because he was always right. There was a side of me when he was put to death. I was like, finally. And then he rises on the third day. Oh, my goodness, he is. Oh, stink. I, wow, I, I got I to gotta get, get in on this. <laughs> right? But when we have these, when we have these subconscious fears, it... it it makes us very rigid and, and unwilling to, to ask those, those real and, and very legitimate questions. And, and what it does is this. Subconscious fear will often lead us to what, what I believe is the, man, it's the biggie. It's the deepest fear. And the deepest fear is, is this issue of of soul fear. Soul fear. You know what soul fear is? Soul fear is when you tell God he can't save you. That's soul fear. I, I will... I'll never forget talking to my Aunt Penny about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and her weeping and telling me, you know, Ed, I, I appreciate you talking to me about this, but I'm, I'm too far gone. With what I've done, God can't help me. And she was convinced 
to the core, she was convinced that she was beyond God helping her. Elijah. Elijah's running in fear, right? He's running in full-on panic. It makes no sense. But his surface fears, have, they have regressed to subconscious fear. And he's running, freaking out because of the accusation of one woman. And finally, he stops. And God asks him a question. What are you doing, Elijah? What am I doing? What am I doing? I'm running. I'm running because I don't know if you know this, God, but everyone who served you, they've killed. I'm the only one left. And now they're, now they're wanting to kill me too. I, I, you might as well just go ahead and kill me. This is where Job finds himself. When Job makes a statement, that which I feared has come upon me. That which I dread has consumed me. And Job, in his lament, here's what Job says. I curse the day that I was ever born. I curse the day. I curse the darkness. I wish I had died at birth. And, and, and what's interesting this, in, in Job's lament... Job never doubts the sovereignty of God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job doesn't say God doesn't exist. Here's what he says. God either can't help me or won't help me. And it grips him at soul level. And that's where Elijah's at. God says to Elijah, what are you, what are you doing here, Elijah. And Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And God says this. He says, look, I want you to go out. I want you to stand on the side of the mountain. And, and I, I believe this moment is powerful. I, I share this a couple years ago, right after I got here. But I believe that this is, this is a, a pretty powerful deal. Moses goes and, and stands on the side of the mountain, right? And there's the violent earthquake. God wasn't there. Just monumental thing after monumental thing. And God wasn't there. And all these things epic that you would think that this is the way that God would demonstrate himself. God wasn't there. And then what happens is there is a whisper. God speaks to him in a whisper. In a whisper. Right? The first time he speaks, 
what are you doing, Elijah? Well, God, it's awful. It's horrible. They're killing everybody. And they're not. And go out and stand beside the mountain. And the second time God speaks to Elijah, how does he speak to him? God says, Elijah, get close. Let's have this intimate moment, Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing? And in the midst of that, Elijah still goes, God, (laughs) they've killed everybody, and now they're going to kill me too. And what Elijah's gripped with, Elijah's gripped with soul fear. It has cut him to the quick. And in that moment, here's what God says. He says, Elijah, I want you to go back the way you came. That which you were running from, I want you to run to. Along the way, you're going to meet up with Elisha. I want you to anoint him. He's your replacement. There's a powerful message in that alone. And then God says this. He says, oh, Elijah, by the way, you're not the only one. 7,000. I've reserved reserved 7,000 who have not bowed. Elijah, I don't know if you remember this or not. This this is not what God says in that moment. But I'm telling you, I I think it's a great point. Elijah, do you not remember a few days ago when you were talking to Obadiah and he told you there, there were 100 prophets hidden in two caves? It's interesting when we find ourselves at the place of soul fear, we inevitably are convinced that we're all alone. Friend, you are never alone. You are never alone. You are never alone. You're never alone. And lo, I am with you always, he says in Matthew 28. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We find ourselves, we... We don't deal with the surface fears. And how do we deal with the surface fears? The way that we deal with the surface fears is perfect love. Perfect love will drive out those surface fears. Why? Because the the answer to surface fears is truth. And you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And when we allow these surface fears to permeate that level, the surface level of our life, they begin to feed subconscious fears. And subconscious fears unchecked lead to soul fear. And we find ourselves imprisoned. Shackled at soul level by the misbelief that the situation that we find ourselves in, that the calamity that we face, that the wrong that we've done, that the adversary that's in front of us is too great for God. Oftentimes we can't even put what we're feeling at soul level into words. But we live with this angst and this hurt. I want you to to flip your Bible over to 1 Peter. 
First Peter chapter 3, it says this, starting in the 13th verse. Who's going to harm you for doing good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Okay, if I shouldn't fear, if I shouldn't be frightened, what then should I do? Remember what we saw in in 2 Timothy, that all scripture is divinely inspired, it's God-breathed, and it is useful, right? For teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, so the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's useful. Listen to this useful portion of scripture. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Instead, or but, 1 Peter 3, 15, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. The way to respond to the fear in our life, the surface fear, subconscious fear, and soul fear, is to make Jesus a priority. To make Jesus a godly focus. This is the reason why there's so many scriptures that we can talk, talk about. We could talk about Proverbs 3. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Matthew 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. We could talk about the Ten Commandments. There is one God. Don't worship any other. Don't don't make any graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. That focus on God, the one true God. Make Jesus your focus. Okay, friend, listen to what I'm about to tell you. It doesn't say make Jesus your focus anytime you're freaking out. And here's the problem. We tend to turn to Jesus in times of panic or pain. We tend to turn to Jesus in times of panic or pain. Instead of being intentional in Walking with him and having him be our priority all along the way every day. We look to Jesus to be a panacea for the difficulties of life. Rather than the Lord of our life. And are you ready for this? Your greatest fears will always be in the areas where Jesus does not have lordship. Okay? If your anxiety is in the area of relationships, let's talk about your relationships and let's talk about whether or not they honor God, whether or not they're according to God's principles. I know I've gone from preaching to meddling now, right? But I want you to think about that. Okay? Your, 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 your career is your anxiety. Okay, let's talk about where Jesus is in the realm of your occupation. 
Let's talk about whether or not your occupation is even godly. And, and you've got this anxiety. Right? My, my, my anxiety is over my family. Okay? How is Jesus at the center of that? Listen, any area where Jesus is not the center is going to be inevitably a pressure point. It is absolutely going to be a pressure point. And so I, I, love, what, I like, love what it says here in 1 Peter. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Okay? Make Jesus your focus, always maintaining a godly perspective. He goes on to say this. He says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Right? You'll find, this, you'll find this, this phrase over and over again in Scripture. On what are you basing your confidence? On what are you basing your confidence? And you'll find this over and over again. Proper confidence in Scripture is because of the understanding that God has given these promises. The Bible is, throughout the Bible, you'll find these promises. There's a little over 7,000 promises in the Bible. And God has demonstrated wonderfully, perfectly, that he's a promise keeper. And so when we base our confidence on the promises of God, and the biggest promise is his presence, what happens then is we have a reason to live with a hope, right? In fact, we know this, that in his mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I love the way the writer of Hebrews puts it when the writer of Hebrews says this. We have this hope as an anchor. Right? So when surface fear comes along, I have this hope as an anchor. What is that hope that the writer of Hebrews is referring to? It's God's vows and his promises. We have this hope as an anchor. It's an anchor for our soul. It's, it's firm and secure. So, so what I do is this, is I, I maintain a, a godly perspective. I always, um, I always have a reason for the hope that I have. But we do this, we do this humbly, Right? It goes on to say, it says this, it says, but do this with gentleness and respect. And then lastly, I walk healthy. I manage, I manage my testimony. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Fear. We all have it. Some of us are afraid to admit it. Right? But we deal with this issue of fear. We deal with surface fear. It's, it's a natural thing. It's, it's part of the human journey. I, I, I'm convinced that we will not be completely fearless until God calls us heavenward. Okay? And so what that means, it means that we will have to deal with fear on an ongoing basis. Maybe not you. Let me just speak for me for a second. A little, little, little bit of confession. I have to deal with fear 
on an ongoing basis. I do. Okay? And there's, there's, there's a list of them. Okay? I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not crazy fearful, but I mean, I, I, there, there are a few things. I've already told you I have a fear of snakes. Um, you know, I fear coming to church on a Sunday morning. There's nobody here. Uh, it's not near as exciting when you're not here. And me by myself in this big room, it, it gets pretty lonely. In, in fact, when there's nobody else in the room, it's kind of creepy. Um, and so, you know, so there, there are some fears that I, that I deal with, surface fears. On occasion, and, and you know what I found is this, is usually when it's, it's usually it's when I'm fatigued, right? And if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Usually, usually when I'm fatigued, it's, it's when those, that's when those subconscious fears kind of kick in, right? I start worrying about failure. I start worrying about rejection. I become convinced that nobody likes me. I can't do it. I mean, and, and it happens, it, it, it doesn't happen, you know, first thing in the morning when I'm feeling good and I'm full of energy, but it does, man, those subconscious fears can come upon me when I'm fatigued, right? Totally understand that because that's, that's where Elijah was. Elijah was fatigued, Jezebel made an idle comment, and Elijah goes running. Can't really qualify, but he freaks out. And I, I, I've been there. I, I don't know so much running for my life, but um, feeling sorry for myself and, and wondering... You know, can it happen? If we let those subconscious fears get the best of us, it's real easy to get to that place of soul fear. Uh, God, I'm not convinced you can do it. I started this morning by addressing the issue of the unchurched. I want to end today by addressing the issue of the unchurched. And I think there are a lot of people that have become unchurched or dechurched because they've, they've fallen victim to this issue of soul fear. And you've, um, you've hit some bumps in the road, you've had some bruises in the journey. And you, you still on some level believe in God, but you're not so confident of God's hand or God's care or God's ability to protect, protect or God's ability to provide. And God had me preach this message this morning to speak specifically to you. And to say to you, he understands where you're at. And what he wants to do today, I'm convinced of this, is he wants to speak to you in a whisper because he wants to draw you close. He wants to reconnect at a very personal level with you. Not religion, not stuff, not rules and regulations, not a bunch of process. But just as he did with Elijah, when he whispers to Elijah, what are you doing, Elijah? Hear God whispering to you in this moment and saying, it's, it's time to, to reconnect. It's, 
It's time to speak truth into this fear that's irrational, that doesn't make sense, but somehow has gripped your soul and robbed you of your joy and devastated your faith. And he wants you to know that you're not alone. He wants you to know that everything necessary for you to be more than a conqueror is still available to you. And he wants you to walk in his joy. We sang a song during worship today. And it says this, I will not be afraid for I know who holds my tomorrow. I will not be afraid for I know he'll make a way through, through the winds, through the storms, through the trials of life, he, he holds us. And when you let go of him, he never lets go of you. I am. Um, I was listening to a, a teaching as I was driving on Friday. And um, can I tell you, as a pastor, I've studied the Word of God for a lot of years. And um, I, don't, I don't really consider myself to be an authority. I'm a fellow pilgrim like you. Um, but I learn new things all the time. And, and, and some of those new things I learn, I, I, it, I marvel at the fact. I go, why didn't I see this before? Um, but a teacher pointed out something um, and it was, just, it was just a little side note that he was making. And for me, it was an, it was an epiphany. It was phenomenal. I go, why didn't I see this? It's so plain. But when sin was birthed in the Garden of Eden, right? God tells man, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do so, you will die. Sin will be birthed and you'll, 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 you'll provide that pathway to, to death. And what does man do? Man eats from the tree. What's the next thing that God does? What's God do? He goes looking for man. See, Satan wants to convince you. In fact, the church has preached this, that sin separates you from God. Right? Well, that person's very far from the Lord. You ever use that expression about somebody? That person is very far from God. No, they're not. And sir, ma'am, no, you're not. See, that's the lie that the enemy wants you to believe to where he can grip you in subconscious and ultimately soul fear. That somehow God is not big enough, that his arm does not reach far enough, that God can't help you. But mankind, even in the garden, when man sinned, you know what God did? God went after him. And God is reaching out to you today, just as he reached out to man in the garden. Man, where are you? Just as he did with Elijah. Elijah, what are you doing? 
And friend, God is whispering to you this morning. And he's saying this. I am here. And know this. I won't let go. I will never let go. Even though you let go of me, I, I am here for you. Right? I love the way Jesus put it. He said this, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So it doesn't matter where you're at. God's standing there in front of you with his arms outstretched saying, come on. Let me comfort you. Let me protect you. Let me encourage your faith. So I will not be afraid. For I know who holds my tomorrow. I I will not be afraid because I know he'll make a way. God, I I won't be afraid because I know that you hold my tomorrow. God, I, I will not be afraid because I know that you'll make.